This is All the President's Minutes, and I'm your host, Blake Howard. In fact, I'm the producer of all the One Heat Minute productions. First and foremost, I just wanted to reach out with my empathy and solidarity for everyone in the United States of America, the African-American community, who once again are being forced to riot to be heard in the face of overwhelming and brazen police brutality. When I conceived of this show, I thought that it would be a great landing zone for conversations about cinema, about journalism, about history and about politics and where those things intersect. The show will go on. However, just some of the episodes that you're going to hear in the coming run of episodes have occurred before any of the events over the last week have unfolded. I once again want to wish my empathy and solidarity from Australia to my American brothers and sisters and to my dear friends and wish them safety in their protest, in their peaceful protest. And this is not unique to the United States. And any Australian who is listening has to have the morality and the fortitude to acknowledge that this lucky country that I feel guilty for continually saying that I'm lucky that I live in is built on the blood of our own First Nations peoples and Indigenous Australians continue to suffer the same plight as African-American citizens in the United States. And whether it's by agenda or legitimate legal restrictions, Australian press continue to be suffocated. And on this show, we're going to talk about it. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. Let's get into the show. Because if we lose Atlanta, what else we got? We lose an ability to plot, to plan, to strategize, to organize, and to properly mobilize. I want you to go home. I want you to talk to 10 of your friends. I want you guys to come up with real solutions. I would like for the Atlanta City Police Department to bring back the Community Review Board, one that Alice Johnson was formerly under, under Chief Turner. We need a review board here because we need to get ahead of it before an officer does some stupid shit. We need to get ahead of it. That's my recommendation to my mayor and my chief. Let's get a review board. Let's get ahead of it. And let's give them power. We don't need an officer that makes a mistake once, twice, three times, and finally he kills a boy on national TV, and the next thing you know, the country is burning down. We don't need a dumbass president repeating what segregationists said. You start looting, we start shooting. But the problem is some officers black, and some people going to shoot back. And that's not good for our community either. I love and respect you all. I hope that we find a way out of it because I don't have the answers, but I do know we must plot, we must plan, we must strategize, organize, and mobilize. Thank you for allowing me some time to speak. I'd like to appreciate our chief for what she said on YouTube. I thought it was very bold to do. I'd like to appreciate our mayor for talking to us like a black mama and telling us to take our ass at home. And I'd like to talk, like to thank my friend for convincing me to come here. Now defer to Joe Beasley now because he knows a hell of a lot more than we do. Thank you. This is another episode of All the President's Minutes. Hello, I'm your host, Blake Howard. I'm fully aware that this is a slightly unorthodox way to kick off the show. However, this week, when I'm speaking to 
the host of the award-winning Other Men Need Help podcast, Mark Pagan. Uh, we kind of go off the rails. It's a whimsical one. We talk about performative masculinity. And it occurred about a few weeks uh, before some of the current international uprising um, uh, began to happen. So uh, we're going to continue to have really forthright dialogue and conversation about the socio-political environment that we find ourselves in on this show. Uh, and, and some of those episodes are, are coming very soon because we're increasing the frequency from three episodes a week to four. Uh, but this episode is a very whimsical and a fun one. And in fact, for this episode of All the President's Minutes, we are now up to the 48th minute of the film. Mark and I don't even get to it in the show. We talk about performative masculinity, new Hollywood men, our idols. It's a fun one. And uh, it's only happened once before. A precedent set by Manolo Dargis. The minute was not important to the conversation. The conversation was the thing. Before we get started talking to Mark, here's the minute in question. The 48th minute at the top of the show. And then we'll dive in and talk about performative masculinity. Thanks for listening. Kenneth H. Dahlberg, D-A-H-L-B-E-R-G, Dahlberg. McGovern, who at first had voiced complete support for Eagleton, has more recently expressed doubts and said that Eagleton must make a decision whether to stay or leave the ticket. You're the one that wanted the articles on Dahlberg, Kenneth H. Dahlberg? Yeah. Couldn't find anything in the clip file at all. Wonderful. Um, I did find one picture, though, if it's any help. Thanks. Minnesota. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a podcast producer, first and foremost, and a host, live from New York City. Uh, and I'm so glad that he and his partner who are in his apartment right now are okay, first and foremost. Um, secondly, he's also an award-winning film producer um, who's toured the festival, uh, who has toured the festival circuit internationally. Uh, and and finally, as with all the guests on this show, seemingly there's a great sort of interconnectedness of guests and then the next people that I talk to. So um, uh, thank you so much, uh, Liam from Uber Busters, who you guys would have heard uh, in just a couple of episodes ago for introducing me to this man. Uh, my guest today has a really fantastic podcast that I've only just started diving into and it's super easy as far as it's running time to completely dive in and binge the living daylights out of it. It's called Other Men Need Help. Um, it's been lauded across a whole bunch of different publications and it's this kind of uh, naked, uh, um, nakedly authentic uh, uh, sort of confessional podcast about masculinity in performance and my guest is the host and the man who sort of stands naked there right at the middle of it, Mr. Mark Pagan. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of the show. <laughs> That's a great intro. Thanks, Blake. <laughs> I'm super psyched to be here. We are always looking for ways to describe the show. And 
I think naked needs to go into it. I need to, <laughs> I need to sell the, uh, the emotional nudity. <laughs> well, I think that may, maybe that's just my immediate reading, but when, when things get, things feel authentic and confessional in nature, yeah. I just feel like the vulnerability of being nude. Like it's like, this is where I am. This is it. Warts and all. There's no, there's no cut and polish. There's no very nice well-cut suit or manicured necklace or a great haircut that is making, you know, beard, you know, very <laughs> incisively trimmed beard. That's making me look better than really when I wake up in the morning and stumble into my bathroom in the harsh lighting in that harsh down lighting. And I see who I, and warts and all, um, I think that that's what your dialogue starts to be. And that's not to say that it's kind of as uh, graceless as that, but I think that that's definitely sure. the intent that I that I felt in the project. So I think one of yeah. the, one of the things that Liam, who introduced us, Liam Billingham, um, introduced us together was because he's like, well, look, Mark, all Mark does is talk about dudes in crisis, and you seem to only examine. <laughs> movies about dudes in crisis to some extent. So um, maybe you guys should get together and talk about it and maybe help one another, I think <laughs> is basically where where we landed with that. So um, let's, let's just talk a little bit about you and your project first up and then maybe some of the films that we're talking about. So how did, how did you stumble into the medium after being a filmmaker? How did you stumble into the medium other, and, and, and the format of Other Men Need Help? Um. Uh, well, I, you know, we'll, we'll definitely dive in. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk about, the, well, in some ways, this era, because uh, like you, I love New Hollywood. Oh. Like the 70s, it, it's just, it, I mean, it was a, like an era of pornography, but not just speaking about pornography, it is my pornography. Like it is my <laughs> pop culture pornography. I love, I love this era. And I, I definitely think, um, so I, when I first started out or when I first wanted to get into film, it was feature film. It was like, I'm, I, I want to script stuff. I want to emulate new Hollywood. Um, and I am an impatient person. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, the development of movies, of course I realized like you hear these stories, like it took two, three, four, five years. Like, yeah, yeah. Cool. 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 And then for certain types, it's like, when it comes down to it, it's like, I don't have that time, man. I want to see stuff happen. That's a part of it. And the other part too, is I think just, I was moving more towards nonfiction media as a, as a maker. Yes. And that could have gone more towards documentary film. And I still have, I still do a little bit of that. But when, when I started other men need help, I was, I was consuming more audio I was consuming more podcasts. And this was initially started as a television or like a televised program. The pitch that we give a lot is that it's Sesame street about men. It's like, <laughs> Oh, what if we, did that? What if we did that? And again, with this idea of impatience and money, um, and also consuming the medium, I was like, it's, it's a pretty intimate medium. I think what we're trying to do is like, we're really after as much intimacy as we can get from the, I'm going to just use the loose term storyteller, but whomever is telling their story, as well as like a host, I was, I just wasn't hearing it. And as somebody who grew up in on men's media, whether it's Esquire or GQ or, or the films we're talking about or, or radio or whatever, I just, I really wanted to hear, have the privacy of a host that could just go like, here's what I did. Like I totally ghosted this person. I'm not trying to say I'm great about it. <laughs> and everybody we're going to talk to is going to have that level of intimacy as well to be able to like 
to open up. And also with podcasting, it just seemed, it seemed so experimental. Like it seemed like you could be super cinematic with your storytelling. Um, it, it, it just, it opened up, it, there, there just seemed to be like a removal of limitations that film at the time seemed to have as somebody who was making it and somebody who's interested in making it. I, I love it. And I love the community too. So those are like, those are like my bullet points that, that I give for how this all became, how some of the genesis points for why this became a podcast. And you know what's funny about New Hollywood? New Hollywood is the absolute collision of that because if you if you sort of see who the seminal New Hollywood figures are, it's like sort of 68, it's Cassavetes, it's him filming movies in his lounge room with his friends basically, like taking a house and going, all right, we're going to semi-improvise these things. And some of it's like as nakedly intimate as that and it's and, – and, and it, it is like the engine for a lot of the other stuff because then anything that is – you know, this is a, you know, the movie that we're talking about is a tried and true studio movie. Like it's a Warner Brothers studio movie, but it, it, it has all of the, I don't know, has that energy, the kinetic and chaotic energy of like there is, you know, all you have to do is have a Dustin Hoffman in it this time and it's got that energy, you know. It's, it's, there's a certain energy, there's this classic, there's a passing of a torch, these guys are young and hungry. It's kind of got all those ingredients that say this is new Hollywood and politically – Absolutely being able to have like an open political dialogue in a movie feels like a very new Hollywood thing because before it's like, mm -hmm. no, status quo, hegemony, like let's just underscore what what is right now and then later on it yeah. seems like it does the same thing. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I, I, and I completely agree with you about podcasting as a medium, you know, even as I feel like the, there is a, um, there's a transition even in the, your ability as a host that goes from turning a podcast into something that is like really garage band into something that feels like a produced live album, you know, like you just having the ability to be a better podcaster or just even on the programs that we've done on this, on, on this feed, it's like setting tones and moods and music and, and feelings and, you know, tying in different people and having episodes that are full of needle drops and even episodes with interviews where people are at a cafe and you can hear all the ambient noise and stuff like that. It's, you know, that's one of the things I loved about, you know, a couple of times it. in your show is you're talking about being in a cafe with someone and there's all this cafe ambient noise. I don't know whether you've just sat in a New York cafe sort of quietly recording how you've got, gotten that or used stock, <laughs> or, but it's like you hear something that and you're like, oh, I'm in this place now. And, you know, it can be manufactured or it can be, it can be real, it can be both. It's, yeah, it's just a, a, a completely you know I, I i i like that about the medium too it's exciting and it's immediate no one is giving you permission no no one no one's waiting for your pitch for why you need no. to talk about michael mann's heat a minute at a time no no one was waiting for that pitch it was the pitch and, no. and likewise no. with this movie it was the pitch that like no i didn't have to get permission and you have country in the, as well as with that, with not having permission, you can know your audience immediately. Like, you know, there's going to be an audience for that, you know, there's, and you've developed an audience and you know, like you have sort of like this, the romanticism again, going back to the new, the, the new Hollywood era of like, you like, I'm my own audience sort of thing. Yes. That's like a lot of these guys went in and just like, there's going to be an audience for this. It's a personal vision. And I think that too, it's like, you have so much to what, like what an amazing, in terms of the medium to be able to, to manifest that as well as just have like direct contact with the people that are into your shit is incredible. I'm that's the thing I would, I would make something like the last, 
I don't want to use the word successful because that's a super relative term for what I'm about to say. <laughs> the last thing that I, I directed that had legs of any kind is a, like festival legs. Was a, it's a film I did almost a decade ago called Raymond and Lena. And it was really, it was lovely to make. I was, it was the first time I, I made something like on film, you know, it was on, on, on Super 16 and it was just such a great experience. And we, we did festivals and stuff like that. And, um, the last, uh, one of the last screenings that we did was at Martin Luther King library in Washington, DC, which is my hometown. Speaking of the, the movie that we're going to be talking about. And there were two people in the audience, one who was a vagrant and the other who was looking <laughs> <laughs> for the periodical section. And part of me is like, this is awesome. But the other part of me too, is that like, you know, we, Yes, you want people to experience what you're doing, but it was another question for like, am I working in the right in the right system, the right medium? Like, I made a movie, I liked what I made, but it was also it was made for the festival circuit. Like, it's not going anywhere. It's not like people are, are saying like, ooh, I want to watch. You know, people aren't hanging out with their friends. They're like, let's watch this 12 minute drama, man. Like, there's 12 minute, <laughs> you know, that place slam dance and if they did that's great but there's probably like five of those people out there and versus um you know i think what we're making is is independent it's it's definitely like uh, it's independent in spirit as well as as, as vision based and it's just really nice to podcasting inherently because you're speaking into somebody's ear i think it just it enables a sort of audience um both an audience connection but engagement that's it's just, I, I, I very honestly, warmly think that it's wonderful. And, uh, that's, that's another reason why I continue. I think I've just fully like 90% of me has moved over to this as the, as the storytelling format. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, it's nice that it's nice that there is, um, the longer and shorter form storytelling elements. And I also like, um, and I think people talked excitedly about it. I don't know if people are still allowed to say this, but there was that Louis CK experimental sort of, uh, locked off sort of sitcom camera show that he made for his website exclusively that had, the Horace and Pete. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, Horace and Pete. And what was thrillingly exciting if people are even allowed to say that it was thrillingly exciting was that you never knew what length the episodes were going to be. Sometimes they were like 35 minutes and then the next week it was 20 and then one week it was 50 and it was like, wow, haven't we been programmed that a sitcom is 21 minutes basically on the button and a normal Mm -hmm. long form show is 42 and that's it. And then, you know, sometimes it broadens, you get to sort of HBO era and it's like 55, you know, 50 to 60 minutes is the average of a long, long series of HBO. The rest of them are like 20 minute shows if it's short, but it was like, that was, was thrillingly exciting watching an independent series like that, or even a show that can be on Netflix occasionally. Now it's just like the running time is at the leisure of the producer. And so What's been really exciting uh, watching uh, just sort of consuming some of your stuff is like how powerful and punchy and potent it is, but it's very consumable. It's like these little confessionals are like short and punchy and really, you know, that doesn't not to discount any of how effortlessly produced they are, but it's like they're punchy. And so that's what also excites me a little bit as well. And it actually excites me in the, in the dialogue that I have on this show is like that sometimes an episode only needs to be 30 minutes. 
Like that's just by the, right. and, and that, uh, that's got right. no, that's got nothing to do with my intention of the show. It's it's sometimes just that I come on and there is a guest who is so articulate. You know, there's a great guest who's coming up in two episodes time from yourself, the legendary Kenny Turin from the LA Times. And I spoke to Kenny. Oh wow. The the only film critic who's ever been demanded to be impeached by a filmmaker, James Cameron, at the time that he panned Titanic, um, you know. So Kenny Turin and Nixon share that in common. Um, but uh, you know, I think that episode maybe goes for like thirty minutes, and it's some of the most insightful stuff I've ever heard. Because Kenny, after you know, at seventy three, after fifty odd years of being a reporter, not only a reporter in the Washington Post. Watergate era newsroom, but through the LA Times and writing about film and cinema and books and everything he's written about, he just speaks so eloquently and punchily and succinctly can just get to the crux of something. And so I was thinking about that in reference to your work. It's like when you do, you can be a really dynamic and concise storyteller in this medium and go, sometimes you need to speak in long and go long on minutes and go long on poetry of something. And other times you talk to people and it's like some of the most potent stuff in, in that short thing. So that's what sort of excites me about the medium. Sorry, we've gone a little bit about inside baseball on this, but I think that that's uh, it's part of what is exciting about this medium and exciting about, you know, it was definitely exciting about, you know, new Hollywood because it was like 88 minutes of, you know, 88 minutes of this and 73 minutes of that, um, <laughs> you know, they were just, you know, we're not making a two hour movie or we're not making a short movie. We're making the movie we're making in the time we're making it. And we're taking as much time as we need to tell it. So what was your, um, you might've talked about this on the show. What was your new Hollywood um, introduction? Like, when do you remember? Well, what was the first movie that you knew that it was like of that generation? Um, I would say like the the most overt one was and and so you, you kind of are watching and consuming sometimes new Hollywood movies that you don't even know in New Hollywood. So you're finding yourself drawn to it. And I actually did it in a protracted way through Michael Mann. So I loved Michael Mann movies, I loved The Insider, I loved Heat, and you know, then I was, you know, loving things like All the President's Men, I loved The Godfathers, I loved The Conversation. But I think the movie that like really uh if I said like if you want to see a new Hollywood movie, this is new Hollywood is, um, is Cassavetti's killing of a Chinese bookie because mm. it's, it's so sprawling that it, do, it doesn't care. It has no care factor for what any of your preconceived notions of what a, an entity is. And especially, I think that that's why I love it so much is because it's underscored in, in it's so t- tightly wound to a genre which we love, you know, kiss, kiss, yeah. bang, bang. Um, but it is the antithesis of that. Um, and I love Ben, I think Ben Gazzara, you know, I've recently watched Roadhouse for the first time and I'm like, you know what? That movie is trash, but Ben Gazzara is is doing art in that movie. You know, he's doing something that no one else in the universe can do. Like he's making this complete schlocky movie have the most sociopathic, and like psychotic villain that feels really authentic. And you're like, this doesn't make sense. This movie doesn't deserve this villain. Like it absolutely in no circumstance deserves a guy that's this good. So yeah, I think that that was one of the first ones that I really would say, if like, if you're looking at new Hollywood, it's that, but obviously then there are the bigger ones where you just go, well, look at, look at taxi, look at taxi driver, look, you know, look at mean streets, look at the conversation, look at the Godfathers, like the Godfathers deeply, 
deeply new Hollywood stuff. You know, look at that. Look at Apocalypse Now. Um, and I even think, you know, I think I think it even stretches. Some people go, as soon as Jaws happened, there's no more new Hollywood. I, I, I don't prescribe to that theory. I'm like, no, it goes all the way yeah. up to like Raging Bull. And then after that, you know, it's really rammed down our throat that the Reagan era is here. And like, it's the difference between First Blood and First Blood Part 2. Like, if you watch First Blood, that's still New Hollywood. And then if you watch First Blood Part 2, when he's taking revenge and killing everyone in Vietnam and, and Stallone is like completely shredded, you're like, yeah, that's it. It's done now. It's over. Um, so, yeah, I think that I would say that because, again, it's a manipulation of genre. It's completely slow. The form is so loose. Um, it does hit the genre beats, but it does them in such a way that, like, you'd be shook. You, you'd be completely shook to go, I can't you, – you just can't believe. You can't even believe that that's – it's the same genre where there have been, you know, dirtbag crooks trying to get themselves out of gambling debts and, and killing killing people, you know. Like, we've seen that those tropes, those beats in a story, but none of them are expressed like they are in, in Killing of a Chinese Bookie for me. What about you? Yeah. Um, well, I think just based on my reaction to seeing it, I had a friend of mine in ninth grade who's like, we were just trade gangster movies. He's yes. just like, yo, did you see this? You see this one? I mean, that was the diet at that age. <laughs> I mean, good, 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 the bad ones. Like, you know, um, whether it was uh, something like, I mean, even like, uh, portions of true romance or whatever it is, or something like state of grace with Sean Penn. But we just keep saying that, Oh, you see this one. So he was like, he came into school. He goes, yo, my little brother or my older brother's got this VHS. It's called mean streets. This thing's supposed to be badass." And I started watching it and I was like, I'd seen Goodfellas. I think I knew who Martin Scorsese was, but I started watching it in the first five minutes of mean streets. You know, they have that, Harvey Keitel falling on the pillow and then the, the eight millimeter, 16 millimeter footage that rolls over the credits. And there was this fight in myself going, what the fuck is this? And also somewhat like not aroused in the sexual sense, but there was something, something, there was something was, so compelling. about. You were like DiCaprio. Yeah, you like, were like DiCaprio and Django. You have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I noticed something was, was different in that era. I had seen the Godfather when I was in, cause again, it was another gangster movie thing. So some, at some point earlier, saw it way too early because I was like, <laughs> fuck this. Like I can't, I can't get through this. And I love this now, but it was that. And then, um, sometime in college, I saw five easy pieces mm. and it's like, Oh, I get it. I get it. Like I get, I get what's going on here. And I haven't really revisited. I've kind of kept that as a romantic, 20 year old viewing like I almost don't want to come back to that movie because it's such it's it's that like connection with the the anti-hero narrative and this idea of self-mythology and I just I like my 20 year old having seen that and lived with it and whatever whatever good that's that whatever the good ripple effects of seeing that sort of like early new Hollywood narrative building has done for anything that I've done I'm like just leave it alone just don't. I, and I, I do like the work of, um, of Ray Fulton. I have seen, I've seen a few, I've revisited like uh, King of Marvin Gardens and what did I just watch? Anyway, Main Street. I'm going on, on a tangent. Main Street <laughs> was the first one. Uh, five Easy Pieces was the cemented. Cool. I think I'm, I'm I, this era I'm getting. Uh, yeah. You're like, now I, I understand. I know. I at least know what they're doing. <laughs> I know. I know what, I know what the game they're yeah. playing is. Yeah. I, I didn't, um, 
I, I think you, you made a great point there is like, this is where maybe I'm very different to others is that I, when, when I've got a history with something like that and I can feel, when I can feel that nostalgia for it, like I have to go and revisit it and I'll put it on a loop. It'll be on a loop. It'll be on a cycle. It's all right. In three more years, I'm going to go back and tackle that again and see, see where I am on it. Um, five easy pieces is one I haven't watched though. Like I, I, I did, you know, I, I poured over it in university. I was in the middle of tertiary study. I was studying, you know, authorship and masculinity for my, for a thesis actually on Michael Mann. And when I was looking up, oh, wow. when I was looking up that authorship concept, I was really tackling, you know, the concept of people politically expressing their sort of political beliefs and their, and their background through cinema. And it was like, well, you know, the way I tracked Michael Mann back was like, well, he's a new, he's a new Hollywood guy. Like that's who he is. He's a, he, he didn't have the same route to new Hollywood as Scorsese or, you know, De Palma or, you know, Ralphison as you were talk, uh, uh, talking about, or, or, you know, Cassavetes, et cetera. He made a couple of little docs and then, um, and then he goes to England uh, to film school and then comes back and he's doing Miami Vice on TV in the 80s. So he's not making any of this like he's not a new Hollywood guy who started in New Hollywood, started making movies there and then sort of carries that ethos through his entire career. He's a guy who's making it in this weird protracted way. So then he makes The Insider, which is his, you know, um, his journalism movie, but that feels like a new Hollywood movie, like to its bones, to its fundamentals mm-hmm. of its DNA. And you're like, oh, this guy he's making this in 99, like, you know, sorry, 97 rather. So you're like, it's, it doesn't, it's almost doesn't compute in your mind. You're like, no, this doesn't work, you know, um, uh, oh, sorry, 99 rather. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. So that's, I think that's where I was studying. And I, at that time, I think I watched the most new Hollywood movies. Like in a year I, I watched, like, I would say I watched like everything that if someone said, what is new Hollywood, uh, every single movie that you could list broadly under that genre, like if you Googled it right now, New Hollywood and all the movies that come up, I've watched every one of those. There's probably some obscure ones that I haven't seen, but it's like I've watched every single thing to kind of get in that headspace of like, oh, okay, this is what politically and fundamentally in portrayals of masculinity, this is what the ethos was. It was sort of, it was getting underneath um, getting underneath those projections and underneath that performance to to some of that naked authenticity about you know this is dark this isn't fun this is this is what race is in this country this is what political expression is this is what masculinity is and this is this is the the not sexy version of that this is the kind of all of all of those things so um, but yeah let's get to my yeah oh sorry go what were you going to say no it's a total tangent my my want to have this walk, not the one that I, not the way I actually walk, but <laughs> the way I'd like the world to see me walking is, and this happens still, like I, I live in a city, so I, I walk around a lot and I, I know how I walk. I know what I'm trying to do. It's based on James Con, James Con and Thief. the way James Con moves his body in that movie. I saw that when I was a senior in high school and I was, I just, I have emulated that since I love that movie, but his, and I love his performance, that movie, but my God, like the, the length of his body and, and, and the way, of course, the way Michael Mann, in some ways, like in this movie, I was just for like, every man with a oh. short, for every man with a short torso, James Khan is actually, yeah. James Caan is our king. I just watched um, for the first time White Lightning with Burt Reynolds yes. a few weeks ago. And again, that elongated, just, just 
stride. And I just, it is it. Like I can feel it in my, like I can feel my hairs raising up. It's like, Oh, I, <laughs> I get and like the arousal of it. And so I still, I still uh, feel that way. Um, but yeah, in terms of like going into, and I don't know if you have a segue, but I've, this might be an interesting segue is that uh, I just uh, seven hours ago was the first time I watched all the president's men. Seven hours ago. I had never seen it. The only, uh, uh, is it Pacula or Pacula? I can never, it's uh, so, so there is right now I've heard so many people pronounce it differently. And, I, and I'm taking yeah. the approach of the host of our show on, on the One Heat Minute Productions feeding Kermit Vice, Travis Woods, who who has the the wrestle with Thomas Pynchon or Thomas Pynchon with in, Inherent Vice. So I just every episode alternate like Trav. So we both have kind of taken the approach of like, I haven't heard anyone who actually knew the guy. I'm gonna, about very, very shortly, I'm about to talk to someone um, on the show who is extremely close to the production, which I'm super excited about. And I will get a definitive, his name is Alan Pakula or Pakula, or this is how he pronounced it. And then I will, from then on, when you hear that my pronunciation becomes rigid about how I do it and, and if I correct people, then uh, you know that I've spoken to someone very close to the production. So, so just I, uh, cho- choose whichever whichever is your poison, Mark, either either or. Pacula is rolling off the tongue easier today. Um, but I, the only Pacula movie that I've seen, the only one, and I saw this in college and then revisited it um, – right when quarantine started uh is parallaxia which i love i love i love i love and uh my sophomore year of college there was a professor who we didn't watch all the president's men but he was i can't even remember what the lecture was but we were in a uh in in a cinema or like a you know a theater to to watch some clips of things and i remember him just going hey uh to whatever the projection is he's like uh so uh we're going to actually, I'm going to skip ahead. Go, I want you to do all the president's men, but just go to the opening scene and turn it up. Just like that. Just very dramatically. Make sure the volume is up. And, uh, you know, as people listening know, as, as you well know, as the person doing minute one of this show knows, it's that opening scene with, you know, the typewriter. And like, yeah, it's, it's hit. It's like, you know, a cannon and blah, blah, blah. And I was so, uh, I, I, I was so overwhelmed by it. That speaking of like self narrative, I've told people for X amount of years now that I've seen the movie. I quote that like I'm sort of dinner parties, like, you know, it's a good edit. You know, it's a really powerful use of sound is all the, but I've never seen the fucking movie until seven hours ago. And I don't, I don't, honestly, Blake, I don't have, I, I was like, well, oh, I'm going to be, that's such, that might be an interesting bridge here what do I have to tell Blake about why I haven't seen it? You know, especially us having this, having this um, euphoria over this era uh, of these films. And I'm sure I would have loved it. I have no idea. I have no idea why it's taken me, you know, all of this time to, to come to this film, but I'm completely fresh. This is my perspective is, is uh, not even a day old of having watched this movie. I haven't even seen clips. I've seen the first 30 seconds. And then the whole movie now, I haven't even seen anything on YouTube. I've seen Simpsons references. <laughs> I can tell you, I can guarantee you 90% of the films that I've seen from almost any era, I saw as references on the Simpsons before I had any clue. Like I saw Barney 
put a pillow over Homer Simpson's face and throw a fountain out the window long, maybe a decade before I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I just thought it was hilarious. And people were like, no, that's a, you know, the, the adults in the room, that's a Cuckoo's Nest reference. I'm like, what's Cuckoo's yeah. Nest? Oh, you'll watch it later. Not right now. You're, you're, you're <laughs> six. Okay. Just, it's, you don't need, you don't need to see Cuckoo's Nest just this minute. Yeah. Look, it's a funny thing. I, I, I genuinely uh, get excited and, and this is not a, a di- and it's the same as when people have seen Heat or, or Mohicans or any of the projects that we've done um, along this show. I, I genuinely get excited because I'm like, especially if you enjoyed it or if I know that New Hollywood is your shit, I'm like, I, I'm i just so jealous of your naked nothing experience. You have, mm-hmm. you, you are a clean slate. Um, uh, you know, you might've seen that original opening scene, but you get to just go through the ride because it's impossible for me to understand what that's like anymore. And similarly with heat people like I've never seen it. I'm like, I'm almost like, Oh, I'm so jealous. I really want to be that yeah. person who's seen, who's never seen it to watch it for the first time with the, with the hope that it's going to be amazing. So you watched it for the first time. Did it live up to your expectations? It's really, I'm trying to think of the right analogy, but I, my, my girlfriend, um, you know, I told her about the podcast. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to be watching all the presents. And she's like, Oh, cool. I said, I've never seen it before. She was, she, you know, same reaction, you know, like, Oh, you never seen it. She said, like everybody says, it's great. It's great. Uh, so I watched it. She occasionally was coming in and kind of doing work next to me and, 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 and watching here and there. And we just, we had dinner, uh, before I got on, on this recording with you. And it's so, it's so feels so rare, but it feels, it's like, it's like when you make, when you visit a, like you make an old friend, a new friend again, or maybe you make a new friend, but I was, I was having dinner with her and just like very casually, but so easily it's just saying, that was a really good movie. Like, like it was just, just like, like that, like that was just a really good movie. It's like, I saw Casablanca for the first time 15 years ago. And that's just the reaction besides like it lives up to reputation. It's just, that was a really good movie. God, that was good. It was just a really yeah you, yeah. you almost you just go. People are like, oh, what did you think? You're like, it was. It, t- it, t- it sort of takes your breath away a bit. It feels like a bit of empty articulation. It's like, yeah, it was good. Like, if you if you want any more than and and sort of in some ways, if you want any more than that from me, it's going to take me a little bit of time because we're just so yeah. new. To, we're, it's like being in a new relationship. She's she's great. How is she? She's great. <laughs> You know, she's great. <laughs> she's great. Why is she great? Oh, you know, everything. I just I, the smell, yeah, it, the conversation, the way. I think walk. maybe that's that's the analogy I was looking for. Yeah, I am. I am. I am enamored, and I can't put into words. We haven't even hooked up yet. You know that sort of thing. <laughs> I think. I think there's a spark there. We met at a party. We're gonna probably hang out for much longer. And I'm just analyzing. Like I'm gonna spend the weekend thinking about her, and then going, Ah, oh, I can't wait to see her again. And oh, I hope she looks the same. She, of course, she's gonna look the same. Of course, she's gonna look the same. You know, it's that sort of thing. I just, I um. I don't know. And I, I was observing my reaction because I was going, what was my, what, what was trepidation is the right word. What was my trepidation of taking this long to get to it? Was it the fact that it was long? I watch long movies. Is the fact that it's from, you know, have my taste changed? Sure. But not really. Like I, I just, you know, I, I, during the quarantine, we've been watching, we're revisiting a lot of classic films and things that I loved in college, things that I, I haven't seen. Um, and so I, I just don't know. It was just one of the big ones that I, I, I left. And having loved 
you know, a parallax view, which came, you know, which was just, this is hot on the heels. This is hot on the heels of parallax. This is hot on the heels. Yeah. Of parallax. Which was like, I, I saw that in college and it just parts of it, especially with having a leading man like Warren Beatty is it's like, this isn't allowed to feel this punk rock. Um, and so composed, like it's, 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 it's very formal in the way it's done, but it just, it, it's so fucking unnerving um, that of course, with this being right around the corner, I was like, it, it can't have, and it has such a reputation. It can't be that dissimilar from the tone and the atmosphere. Like the control over atmosphere is incredible. Like anybody that can control atmosphere, any, 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 anybody who, you know, speaking specifically with film, any filmmaker that can do that, I'm just completely enamored with, even if I don't agree, or even if I'm not, um, if there's an immersion or if there's a reaction with, with atmosphere, mm. like it's, an, it's just that, that is, that is it. And, um, just the hypnotism of, of these two films of, of what I know of his filmography, I still have to see clue. Uh, you know, this just to another complete, reminder to, that I, to complete the trilogy. You've gone, you've gone around to yeah. that, but it's what you're going to find with clue is, and, and I think in parallax and clue, you see, you see unadulted atmosphere and vision. Like you see it there. And I think what is amazing about presidents in contrast, and this is for f- people that are new to it, is that there is so much of presidents that requires uh, a connection to authenticity. So, you know, newsrooms, courtrooms, uh, door knocking through Washington, the town itself, car parks, exterior views, you know, lined streets, the Library of Congress. And so much of those feel like it's it's so atmospheric, but it's sort of like a tangible atmospherics. And then you get to moments where it's like the bookkeeper's house or driving in dark cars or the underground car parks with deep throat and and you know, you're literally transitioning yourself into the underworld or like blaring music and typing messages to each other like we are in danger. You know, it's like in those moments that I love this movie's ability to take you from like it just sort of lures you in. It's like oh, here's here's a newsroom. It's it's great. You're in you feel like what it's like to be in the texture of a newsroom. It's a real space. And then there's these like metaphysical spaces as well. Here's darkness. Here's places that make your hair stand up. When you when you can hear the echo of your footsteps hitting concrete, reverberating from behind you, prickling up. You know, here's a you know, to the scene we're talking about, here's a sweaty phone box, and then here's a mountain of phone books that I have to try and wrangle through. It's like there's these tactile things and these I don't know, these weird sort of sensory things that sort of tick with you in this whole movie. And, 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 and again, while being rigorously authentic, it is still able to have a whole bunch of artistry that so many other docudramas later, almost from like this moment onwards, that appear to come as like we're trying to tell things in the same school of this movie, seem to miss that, mm-hmm. no, there is a very careful planning that has gone into how – we want everyone in the audience to feel at every moment of this film. It was beautifully controlled. I'm yeah. I'm so happy to have had a movie experience like that recently. I, I don't know what I've watched recently where I've, where I felt that way. And I think too, I think I'm having a bit of um, with viewings recently, and this will definitely, uh, uh, you know, keep this very much in the moment, our conversation <laughs> But I'm I'm feeling very I'm feeling very nostalgic and very um, 
uh, you know, just quiet emotional reactions to uh, whether it's, it's a place or location or relationship. And in particular, seeing, seeing something that is so authentically in D.C. There was a scene earlier on where... Uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman and I um, can't remember the character's name, but they're outside at the, I think it's the Kennedy Center. Um, but they're, you know, he's trying to get information. It's daytime and you hear the plane going overhead. Yeah. It's, and, I, I, I'm told from Nell Minow, who's a terrific film critic um, in the Washington area, writes for Rodrigo.com and, and, and many other places. But when I spoke to her, she said that is the former Q Hotel. In Washington, that is no, ah, okay. that's no longer there anymore. But yeah, I, I, that in that choice of a plane going over and having to contend with that, that is like punk rock New Hollywood shit. Like, like let's let's have the sounds and just we are rolling. Hey guys, we're rolling. It's not a Hollywood soundstage. We're not adding this in later. We want her to talk louder when the plane's loud. And then talk quieter when the planes so aren't loud. It's like, we, it means we've got to yeah. take whole segments and takes, you know, again, you know, you would know this as a filmmaker yourself. You've got to take whole takes then, good or bad, mm-hmm. you got to take it because you're not stopping for the sound. You're going to make people battle through it. I love that. It's a such, that's a scene where you're like, this movie's different. When, when they're outside and the planes are roaring, you know, that's... It's like 10 minutes into the movie and I just, I, I adore it. Oh, great. It's also, it's, that is national airport. That is like, <laughs> oh, you guys, you guys listened to the city. Like you listened to where you were filming. You know, you were talking about the, the, the authenticity. I remember years ago when Enemy of the State came out and there was just all this inside sort of inside Washingtonian backlash about it. It's like, well, you would never in traffic get to BWI airport in that amount of time. Yet Will Smith magically, you know, it's like, <laughs> and you're sort, of, you're sort of like, you guys are ridiculous. And also as somebody from the Washington area, it's like, yeah, that's fucking bullshit. He would never, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's any, 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 anything that does like a sense of place as famous as Washington DC is, and as much as you can show these capital landmarks, um, just showing the beat, like I just, I could live the same thing with like killing of a Chinese bookie. Um, these also these details of routine, just, yes. the, just like I could just sit with mundane. I mean, I'm, you know, I think that is the beauty of new Hollywood of just, of just being able to celebrate the mundane in a lot of ways. Like yes. this is where we're going to, this is where we're going to derive our drama. This is where we're going to derive our suspense. And it's absolutely right. Like it pays, it totally pays off in this film. You know, the, the minute that we're, that, that we're dissecting in a lot of ways, it is built around this discovery. Like there is, it is a pivotal moment, but it's, it's, it's freaking, it is literally paperwork. It is literally <laughs> paperwork. It is, but, it is. But it's all, it's, it, it's the most Zucker brothers joke of this movie as well. Like that's what it feels to me. Like I've kept watching this scene in preparation for our conversation and it's like, Woodward, you better hurry. Cause I've got this break in the story yeah. and we've got to find this guy and we've got to find it. And it just, then the cut, the cut too is a guy going through is doing the most boring thing that anyone could do in the history of boring things. It's like going through the phone book, every phone Mm -hmm. book, 50 odd phone books. I don't even know, maybe more if there's like city and state based phone books. It's like, oh, what a tireless, thankless, boring task this is to go through all these phone books. Maybe it's hundreds of them, but it's like, oh God, this is so... Sorry, tiresome, brother. It's just so boring. This is so boring. And it goes from like 
We've got this break and back to boring. Back to the mundane. Back to what the grind of this actual story is. I love it. I love it. I was I was totally bored. I did a little Instagram story before our call because I just kept taking pictures of all the insert shots of, uh, especially towards the beginning, of all the insert hand shots of writing down notes, which I'm going to overuse the word probably during our talk, but it's just pornography for me. <laughs> I just, I, I can sit, I can sit with close-ups of hands and paperwork for a long time. And um, yeah, it really hit quite a sweet spot for me. I was, one thing that I didn't look into in all these years of knowing this movie and, you know, speaking about masculinity and portrayals and Robert Redford being a very particular breed and in some ways, an outlier breed of leading man during this era of, you know, the ego of Woodward, like the the real person, how he hearing the news that this was going to be his doppelganger on screen. (laughs) This is going to be his his version. I, I, I'm sure there's, 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 I'm, I'm sure there's a record. I'm sure there's, there's, there is some version of him talking about this. I have no idea. Like, do you know how he, what his response so what's crazy, and this is good just for anyone who's new to the show, welcome if this is your first episode. Um, it's The story is that, and this is what is crazy, and what continues, I think it's like the continual unanswerable of this movie, is these guys are writing this story, and Robert Redford is a very politically engaged guy, and he's into their story writing, these guys. And he hears that they're going to write a book about, their reporting, their, their experience, all of the things that led up to Nixon's impeachment trial. Um, and he actually directly influences the guys to focus the story on themselves because, you know, you you are more than the byline. He talks to the real Wilbur and Bernstein and says, A, I want the rights, and B, I, I think you guys should make it about yourselves, like about the minutiae of your reporting. And so they take his advice. They write this story. He has the rights. And he does not really actually even want to be in the movie. He wants to produce it. But he is a very, if not one of the savviest men working in Hollywood ever, actor, producers, um, and directors, that he knows that one of the only ways that you can make a movie about Watergate when people have been experiencing nothing but Watergate for almost four years at the time um, that they're um, seeing this is like, the only way we can make this happen is to put me in it. And so then he becomes the star attraction because he can headline any movie. And then, and then the stones on the guy is to go, I'm the outlier sort of classic old, old Hollywood guy. And he has to contend with probably the biggest movie star in the world at that time, you know, one of three, all of that new Hollywood school, which is Hoffman. You know, it's like Pacino or Hoffman or one of those guys is going to be, you know, going tit for tat with, and he has to sort of stand and deliver across from this other guy and not just be completely blown off the screen. So, the, you know, although that is, it's very nice to be played by Woodward and there are some fun quotes of, um, oh, sorry, played by Redford rather, but it's really nice for Woodward to say, yes, I, you know, it is definitely a romanticized version of me being Robert Redford because he does look nothing like the Redford on screen. It's like that, they made that choice that like, this is a producer choice as much as it's a, as an actor choice. It's like Redford mm-hmm. to star in it makes him the star. But yeah, it's, um, it, I mean, look, you or I, Mark, if people were doing a life story of us and it could have been 76 Redford, 75, 74 Redford, like that's the choice you make. I don't care if he doesn't look anything like you or I, that's fine. We would like him to play us. 
because that's right. the vision of ourselves that we'd like. A guy who can wear corduroy that well, um, which is something that neither of us could ever do in our life. Um, that's that's what he that's what he brings to it, and he's just yeah, he's just. You know, he's a movie star with a capital star. Like, he, he's a guy that when he's doing nothing on screen, the camera favours him and the audience will not tire of him. They won't, t- they'll, they'll give him as much time to do what he needs to do slowly on screen. He's not putting any shine on the ball, that old baseball term. You know, he's not, he's not going over and above to deliver. He's just giving you exactly what you need really deliberately and you'll just stay with him. And that's Pacula as a great director knowing, oh, people love this guy's face. We can stay on this forever. He does concentration very well. I never noticed that about him. Yeah. This is, this is a movie. This is, this is very much an acting. I think if anybody is like, if on your resume as an actor, you're like, I'm, I'm Mr. Concentration. Like this is the movie that you should be in. Definitely asks for that. But yeah, I, I thought, you know, I maybe, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to go through my, 20 years of knowing about this movie. I, you know, I probably knew about it when I was a kid, but 20 years of act- actively like knowing about this movie and what maybe some of the reputations I had in my head were I, and this might be true. I thought I, uh, I had this thought that Hoffman and Redford did not have a good working relationship, whether it's true or not. And I, for some reason there was a response that I did not want to see that on screen. Like I didn't want to, like I, yeah. I sort of, once I know, if, if, even if I've developed that, that narrative on my own, I don't want to project it onto, I feel like I'm going to project it onto the performances or I'm not going to fully be engaged with it. But this was, I, I had forgotten all the character actors that were in it. I'd forgotten, like, this is sort of, it's, it's sort of what I love, what I call jowly cinema. That is a new, that is a new genre for this podcast that I think we need to, I mean, look, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, Hal Holbrook, the jowls on these yeah. guys, the jowls. The jowls. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just, you know, not that anybody does this sort of performance. Um, although Jason Robards has his, has his angered moments, but it is very much like the faces of, of actors. Like you just, they don't need to do these, these kinds of performances, but their faces are very much like, get to the point, you know, it's just very jowly and shaky and, and these sort of like old types, but it is, it is uh, like a fetishist. Uh, it is, it is a love letter to like, sort of like there's, there's, there's so much wonderful fetishism around, of course, newsroom, but like the, the, like, there's, there's beautiful idolatry around masculinity here. Like the, there are some close-ups, but for the most part, it's a pretty, it's a pretty limited look at close-ups. There's good like hairy hands, watches, and pencil, you know, <laughs> writing things down. But uh, you know, the the smoking, the the the, the glasses, and the glasses case, and the pocket, um, and just even like the, how, like the I like. And this is why I like talking to you about it because it's a style thing. It's like there's something about an earned half half askew tie, like mm-hmm. like three p.m. onwards. You've been there since eight a.m. We've got stuff that's filing later, and it's like a tie that's a little bit askew. It's been shaken up after many newsroom meetings. You're in there all day. That just slightly bit of undone. It's like. I feel like in a lot of the afternoon scenes in the, or, you know, a lot of editorial meetings, 
you watch these guys loosen up a little bit and there's just something about like it looks like a, an accident but it's just perfection it's like art them just sitting there with a half askew tie like i you know i've done such intellectual work today that this tie just is just too constrictive i just have to just mm-hmm. get that calculating little open and if you were trying to do it as a as a stylistic cue now it just doesn't seem to work you can't ever get it right it has to be yeah, a happy accident yeah. it's true i I was monitoring my reactions to a lot of this too, because I, I think of course, because of the show, but I, I think just in general, like I, I really love dissecting those areas of when, when the modeling, the modeling that happens with the way we view and the way we view on screen masculinity. And especially these, these early models for, for people like you and I, even though that you and I weren't, um, weren't cinema goers in 1976, Redford and Hoffman are still, uh, loosely, I'll use the word contemporaries. Like they were still on-screen idols, you know. By the time you and I got into movie going, um, and uh, just even monitoring this for the first time in those moments where just my body goes like, "Oh, I want to try that out," or like, "Oh, I'm doing really good." Am I? Am I? Am I age now? One thing that I was and I was surprised about watching for the first time again. A lot of these reflections are coming so fresh. Um, is that I was watching this movie and I was preparing myself for almost dreading uh <laughs> i was preparing myself for the eventual uh and and some movies do this right uh i guess the eventual multiple or the one at the local bar scene you know sitting and going like nope that's not the right you know have, or like or you know minutes later having like multiple beers near them and like bonding or something like that which i don't get me wrong i do love those scenes I do love those scenes and the closest this movie came, which I love. And unless I, unless I didn't catch this, you've dissected this so much deeper than I have is Burger King. They're just like, and they're not even bonding. It's McDonald's. It's actually an old school. It's an an old school seventies McDonald's where they're like having a really, what like looks like a barely warmed meal. (laughs) They're just like, they've gone through a list. They've driven around Washington. They just need to get the hell out of the car. And it's such a, yeah, it lacks all that ceremony. There's not, they're just there and it's like, what the hell do we do? Well, well let's do the list again. That, that, that's mm-hmm. the best they can come up with. There's no real forward progress yeah. other than we have to keep going because we have to, we have to facilitate a break in this story. And the break is going to come from one person that's here. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not done over, you know, I think, um, our friend Liam Billingham will tell you there's a great scene like that in Zodiac. It's you know over blue, it's over blue cocktails between Robert Graysmith played by Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, and 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 Paul Avery played by Robert Downey Jr. There's none of that bonding. Let's have a few drinks, at, at, which is so almost like archetypal for a journalist. Like most journalists are heavy heavy drinkers, so it's like we're going to go and have a drink. But that's that's the uh, that's yeah. that's what's happening in that moment. I think I think Liam Liam. I uh, I told him recently that I was going to watch Zodiac because I had seen it. Long story, but I'd seen it uh, when it was initially released, whenever that was, thirteen years ago or so. And I had uh, <laughs> personal narrative. I had uh, for the first time in my life realized I had a prostate because it was inflamed. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know what happened. I got an infection, and so it hurt to pee. I went to the doctor. The doctor gave me medicine <laughs> for it. The first time. I knew I had a prostate. And so I had taken the medicine before going to see Zodiac, which I don't count because I saw it and basically was in a, <laughs> in in pain. a state. In a haze of pain. In pain. Yeah. 
Uh, so I told him, I, th- I said, Liam, I'm going to watch. And he, I know how much I know he loves this movie. I told him I was going to watch it um, recently, which I did. And he, he messaged me back and he said, he said something like, it's a great movie about male bonding, which I agree with. I actually agree with. And I think there's, there's something about, I mean, that's what we're focusing on for this next season. Um, for the other men need help. And it's generally what I'm fascinated by which I'm, I'm still dissecting in the seven hours that I've seen this movie about what this has to say, or is this almost oppositional to the idea of male bonding, or is it as truthful as they, as it comes, you know, where, where, and, and revisiting this movie in the future, I'd be interested in like pulling out those scenes in which it's the coded moments of actual, because I don't want, I, I'm, I'm very happy that this movie did not have that, that bar scene where it's Woodward and Bernstein you know, first going to the bar to talk about the case, you know, that sort of thing. And then five minutes later, it's, you know, uh, pints uh, all across the table. And I'm like, well, my ex, you know, they're, they're having these. I don't think it would have served the movie well. Um, again, that, that level of atmosphere, this level of like fog that, that Pacula was put on the whole thing. But I'm, I didn't have a, a reaction to, there was no impulse in my body going like, you know, when are you going to get to the male bonding scene? <laughs> but it's really, it's really, it's, it's something that I'm so excited to revisit looking and dissecting those moments that like finding the authentic ways in which this happened. Cause this is a, this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen about obsession. Um, and, in, in my mind and sort of like, uh, that has that potentially, uh, you know, potentially there might be a judgment done by Pacula. I didn't feel it on this first visit uh, with the film, but it feels like a non-judgmental look at obsession. Yes. Uh, or the the the, the um, uh, personal obsession is not focused on. Uh, uh, I think it is a character relationship, but that's another thing that I was monitoring and, and trying to like my, this projection that this moment is going to happen in the movie. And I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. And it didn't, or at least it didn't happen in the way that I expected it, which will be having been enamored with this, <laughs> with this woman, I just this woman called all the president's men. Like I'm going to be thinking about her and try to figure out what those moments were, where it was happening. I definitely as well. The other thing, well, just, 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 just to give you, just to give you some context, some of those scenes yeah. were in original passes at the script. Some of those bonding scenes, some of those things that we talk about in movie making, you know, that movie magic stuff and what, uh, you know, that was the, what, what would you call it? Like that, that was the dramatization of it. That was like, these are the things that we think that prescriptively need to be in a narrative movie like this so that people understand that these guys are having a relationship and, what I think Pacula and Redford and Hoffman's genius is here is they literally stripped it away. They were like, as they were going in, there were some of those scenes there and it was like, no, we don't need them. Like we do not need them. We're going to watch these guys get better at their jobs together and grow a bond together. And it's even in, you know, the, the most famous note that both of these guys do, especially towards the end of the story is they start both actors learn each other's lines so they can interrupt each other at any given part of a scene where they're having a dialogue with usually a third person. And that shows that I know what he's going to say and he knows what I'm going to say. And so Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the story, they feel like they're coming from different 
completely different perspectives, different approaches. And when you see that they start to bring in each other's approaches and each other's sentences, the way of talking in the way that they go about their practices and they get better at their job and that, you know, that getting a story over the line with all the senior editors in their paper becomes an easier thing and they become part of a, a genuine dialogue with the editorial team. It's like, no, their bonding is that they're getting good at their job together. And that's like told that it being, that's literally it being told in the story as these guys grow and evolve without ever having to underscore anything. It's like, no, you're just watching these guys get good at the beginning of the story for a variety of reasons. They're not good at their job. They need each other and they learn these skills. And then, then they become not only to become better, they come an even more potent pairing. But I, I, I love, I love that because, because those scenes those bonding on oh, my ex or my relationship or whatever, there are inferences about these guys and their jobs and their relationships. You know, someone pointed out to me the other day that Carl's very manicured apartment later in the film underscores that he sees mm -hmm. more women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's cleaner. It's got cabinets and record players. It's nice. It's, you know, yeah. and when you've got more visitors, you have to have a nice apartment. Whereas you look at Woodward's <laughs> apartment and it's an absolute, not to put too fine a point on it, it's a shit fight. There's papers everywhere. Yeah. It's it, it looks more like, you know, it's dark. There's clothes all over the place. Like he'll get a call at three o'clock in the morning and it's not going to interrupt anyone. Carl takes yeah. a little bit more care with his apartment um, because he's going to entertain a visitor now and then or more frequently than even now and then, regardless of whether that's a consistent visitor or not. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you've stumped your, your observation and you're checking in with yourself as you're viewing is not an act. That's not an accident. It's you're right. It's not there. It's not there, but, but for so somehow the artistry of this movie is the evolution of their arguments and their disagreements and then their increasing alignment as the story goes on and their, and their ability to speak to one another without actually saying things is exactly what, it is exactly what is part of what makes this, you know, what what makes this a really special movie, and what why you're in this sort of golden, you know, new relationship honeymoon phase right now with it in your mind because that's just like they didn't do any of that. But I understood exactly what I understood exactly what was happening with these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I've I I think too and maybe this was the case with coming to the movie this late is that there was there might have been a fear that because of uh, you know they say things like i'm trying to think of a, an equivalent um uh a movie in which if you see it too late you've seen it you've seen all of the copycat versions yes to the point that when you come to the source material it's ruined more or less so you can say okay well this is where it originated from um, and this is, a, this is a bit of a cliche what I'm about to say. Uh, I, I was surprised seeing this nearly, nearly 50 years after it's been released. Um, how fresh it is. Yes. How like absolutely fresh as a viewing it is, especially with all the, um, sort of like the newsroom cliches that have happened after it. Uh, just, and the other thing too, I think this is also my skepticism coming to a movie like this. And, you know, we're talking about the authenticity of DC is that I, uh, even though it's a newsroom film, I, 
I grew up with a lot of bureaucrats. Uh, the Washington Post was, was the local paper. Um, I grew up in the D.C. area. I hate political movies. Like I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I, I, I can't stand. I can't stand. It's like uh, it, it's sort of the way I guess people talk about being in Hollywood or growing up in L.A. Where it's like I just want to go to a restaurant or a cafe where I don't see people on final draft or talking about so and so that they met or blah blah blah. Not that you know. Not that DC is all that, but it definitely has. It definitely felt that way. So when it comes to like anything narrative or or film, I just automatically my impulse is a bit of a rejection of it, and. All that being said, like the cliches of the newsroom, the cliches of like the expectation of not only just male bonding, but things like where's the work drink, when's the the work drink scene going to happen? And maybe modern, it just, it just felt fresh. It just felt fresh in a way that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's going, it, it feels really fresh despite all of the nostalgia and all of that. And I think you talked about like that, like the arousing sort of, Everything, you know, the, the arousing textures of a newsroom, paper, you know, you know, wearing those suits, going out, having a look at all, all the, you know, that real tactile, real DC area, all that stuff. But it's, but there's something about it. And it's, I, I, I have to just say, it's like, it has to be in the alchemy of the output. It's so fresh because it feels so restrained. It feels like it treats you really like a smart audience member and, and it doesn't, it doesn't gild the lily and doesn't like doesn't have scenes where it's really trying to say this is the point we are trying to make. It is being it's 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 so pulled back, um, and and I think that that's why it feels so fresh. I, I I can't I can't exactly sort of quantify it, and I don't I don't actually know if I'm going to get to the answer. But I agree with you. It feels fresh for me on every viewing, every new like, mm-hmm. and, and when you can, um, my friend says. A friend of the show, Stu Coot, who is a big part of the One Heat Minute project as well, you know, Stu, he says, I like it. He says, I like your shows because you get in the nooks and crannies. He's like, he's like, you just hmm. you go and he's like, you, you go and dig into the corners and, you know, get what's up in that cornice. You know, it's not just about what's in the room. It's like, what's in the cornices? What's up there? What's in that vent? What's what's happening around this little corner way, this little unseen spots? And I think that that's what is so fresh about this movie for me is that, all those scenes, even the McDonald's scene, such a great scene. It's just another. It's just how to get great these guys scene. out of the car. Great scene. How do they get these yeah. guys? How do they get the guys out of the car? How, how do we? How do we get them out of the car just for a brief moment, and having the door stop being slammed in their face just for a second to underscore the fact that they're still butting their heads against a really thankless pursuit of having the door slammed in their face? How do we get them here? But yeah, I think that that's you know, and th- to think about it, that that is. Um, you know, Mark, what you just said is that's part of why I think I feel uh, I feel so passionate to continue this pursuit with films like this because films that are ultimately powerhouses like this film and like Heat, they just feel fresh every time you watch them. And, you know, with Heat, it was almost mm-hmm. 25 years and this is nearly 50 and you're like, it still feels fresh as a daisy. And if it could still feel fresh and have conte- have a contemporary edge and, and still resonate 50 years after, and it was made so hot on the heels of the real life events, then it's just really special. It's, 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 it's not just, it's going to last a little longer than that honeymoon period that you're, uh, you, that golden glow that you've got right now. It's going to last. Maybe this is, maybe this is for the long term. Maybe this is for the long term. I think hell. it's for the long term. <laughs> I have a, 
I have another men question for both of us. Um, and especially in the context of you doing this minute by minute mm. and having, and having such a strong knowledge of every beat, every scene, every visual. So if you were to take this film and you were to, as, as your adult version of, of you now, what would be, and I know what mine is, what would be your bedroom wall moment? Like what would be sort of like the poster of all the president's men? You can relate it to whatever, like you could relate it to the camaraderie of Woodward and Burns, uh, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, or you can relate it to like an actual, like what, what would be that thing that goes up on your bedroom wall, your metaphoric bedroom wall, or like your notebook or your locker? That's like, this is my identity. This, you know what? It, it might have to be. So, so I'm going to recommend people do something first. There's a great, if you go to at Vashi Koo, which is V-A-S-H-I-K-O-O or K-H-O-O um, on Twitter. It's a great editor and editorial consultant by the name of Vashi Nidomansky, who's been a guest on this show. He's an amazing editor and he's been on one heat minute a couple of times and just a, a great guy and teaches a lot. And, and he's made a collage, which is actually the background of one of my screens of every single frame of all the president's men. He's done it for heat, the gunfight scene. You can download it actually and keep it as your screensaver if you want, like I do. Now, if I'm glancing at my screen right now as I am, because I, I, I do know it intimately, but I can cheat a little bit because I've got it in front of my face. I think what I love, the sexy version is Jason Robards as Ben Bradley in his pressed blue velvet suit with his feet up on the desk holding a red pen. That might be the like, like because 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 some people because some people go, and this is where I what I love about these characters. So that's the sexy version. The other version is these two guys interacting after that scene. It's Woodward and Bernstein going. We didn't have it, and he's like, "Why didn't you know? Why didn't you say something?" He's like, "Do you think bitching is going to get us anywhere?" Like I'm the guy who likes the feedback. I, lo- I, I, I that might be a strange perverse thing. Like I love the red pen in my projects, in anything that I'm doing. If I'm working with an editor, I love the red pen. I love the, you don't have it. I love that. And some people are like, I don't fucking want to hear that. I don't have it. Uh, like I, yeah. whereas I am the inverse. I'm like, no, I want to know that I don't. Cause then it's going to direct me towards where I'm going to have it. And so maybe that's my big thing. If I think about it, I think about this movie. I think about the pursuit of these projects. It's like, I want to kind of know that I don't have it. I always want to have that itch that maybe I don't have it. And so trying to stretch the show and trying to stretch myself and, and get great guests such as yourself to stretch me to where I have it. So at the end of it, I have it. Mm -hmm. Like that when someone says, do you want to do any more episodes of the show? I go, no, I have it. Mm -hmm. It's done. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. no, but you should do it forever. I'm like, no, nope, we're good. We'll go on to the next project. Now. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're the kind of things I think that that was mine. What, what about yours? Where's, where's your, uh, what's your image on the wall? I'm, that's it. <laughs> that's the, it. <laughs> the Ben Bradley. It's, I, I watched that scene. There's something, um, 
I don't care who you are in the world, what you do. I am so, I'm impressed, but also I am literally, I am physiologically comforted by expertise. Yes. By casual, calm expertise. So you could be a bus driver and just without ego, you could just say, there's going to be traffic over there. The best route is through here. Or this is how I'm going to navigate. You know, you could be a, a copy editor. You could be whatever it is. But there is the that performance, like like that microcosm of performance. Number one, I didn't see ego. There was no stat. There was no like projection of status. Like I'm going to fucking show you guys. Yes. That's the first thing. So yes. there's no ego there because that would remove me from it. It was just the I'm good at my job. You asked me to do my job and just the, the scanning. And so, and sort of like the, the idea for me of, especially as a man and seeing like these early, the early idolatry of going back to the, you know, we talked about earlier of like the gangster and things like that, like being a middle school and high school kid and, and having this like projection, like, yeah, this tough guy thing. Now as a, as a 40 year old man and, and looking and, and seeing how, seeing the images that I'm, I'm grabbing and going, that would go on my, on my bedroom wall or in my locker, <laughs> because that is what I would love to project. I would yes. love, I'm very comforted by his presence in this scene, number one. So I would love like, I would love that person just like you to have the red pen as well. Like I would, I, I would love to be able to offer that to somebody. I would oh. love, I hope my, my existence at some point can offer that level of expertise where, where it's like, I'm going to talk to you with no ego. I'm going to also talk to you with my expertise. You want my opinion? This is my opinion. And also the way he does it for the rest of the film too. Like, again, there's, it's just like, you guys want to be, okay, am I supposed to trust you? I will trust you. Go do it. And also like, you're coming to me for advice. Like here's, here's what I'm going to give you. Um, it's like, it's just distilled and all that. And of course the, like the beautiful elegance of like the suit and just sitting there and the red pan in the newsroom. It's just, it is just, it is. I'm surprised. I mean, maybe there were high school girls in 1976 or 77 that had a thing for Jason Robards, you know, or young boys that like, uh, maybe there was a poster that we don't know about or Blake, maybe that's the poster I will make. When you finish the old president's minutes, there will be a rolled up tube from Brooklyn, New York. And you'll, you won't even need to, you won't even need to look inside. You'll know what it is. Oh, but that's, that that is exactly you know i think you you nailed it marcus like one day the naked egoless ability to just go oh you want my advice well here it is and you're gonna get it warts and all and um even in a small way you know during this isolation um my uh, I've, my my nieces have been occasionally staying with us you know from one isolated house to another you know, my wife's sister's kids, mm. you know, we've gone from one isolated house mm. and she's got three kids and Australian schools shut down for a period. And, you know, this poor mum's homeschooling three, like just out of, you know, uh, primary school in Australia into high school kids at the same time. And she, we're just like, look, give me one, you know, and we can help uh, try and try and do this. But I've brought back the red pen. You betcha. Uncle Blake, <laughs> Uncle Blake has got... The red pen when when it's like what is your assignment okay cool like let me have a look at it and when i have a look at it the red pen comes out and we cross this out and we make notes and then we talk through it and it's you know that's that what that one day when you just when you're that cool when when you've got the washington post newsroom um and you can be in a, a beautiful velvet suit and walk out and put your feet up and and like you said there's no ego 
not better. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm, this is my, this is what I, I'm good at. And I, and I think you hit, you touched on another thing, which is really, it's about that expertise in all movies and all things. It can be little things. Like it can be, it could be a craftsperson, someone who's a builder, who's really good. They're just like, oh, you need to do this. And just, just like, it's this little touch of mastery. Like I've done this 10,000 times and this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the holes in your story to, to make this better. Um, but yeah, I just, I love that scene to pieces. Look, this is one of the, this is only the second minute in the show and it's happened before that I think that this is where I want to end. We're not even going to break for the minute. I'm going to lead us into the show with the minute and then we're just going to let this sprawling conversation exist in its whole form. But Mark uh, Pagan, thank you so much for being a part of All the President's Minutes. It's been an absolute treat talking to you. Likewise. And thank you for having me and for prompting my my eventual much needed viewing of this masterpiece. Blake, I'm in love. Thank you. <laughs> that was my wonderful guest, Mark Pagan. If you want to follow Mark, you can find him at, at the Mark Pagan, which is P-A-G-A-N. And you can also find his podcast, Other Men Need Help, at, at Other Men Pod, or just type in Other Men Need Help and you can find him. Wow, um, he was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's... Um, nice to reflect on that episode and listen back and still be having a bit of fun take care of yourselves stay safe thank you so much for listening to another one heat minute production thank you so much for listening to all the president's minutes one heat minute.com at one blake minute at atpm pod and at increment vice for travis's show we'll catch you on another episode very soon